introduce everybody here. Uh, this is David Mizajewski, aka Thornbreak, sitting here at San Diego Comic Con 2016 with none other than Wendy and Richard themselves. And we are at the Dark Horse party, and we're a little bit um, early, so we figured we would record a little mini interview here because I've been peppering these two with questions since uh, we got here two days ago and um, so we might as well capture some of their thoughts and answers so that everybody can enjoy and and because we're all having alcoholic imbibements <laughs> these will be really interesting answers full disclosure I'm on my second martini so <laughs> just bear in mind I'm sticking with a nice light wheat beer because I'm the designated recorder <laughs> all right so um, you know San Diego Comic-Con you guys have a long and storied history with this show um, you're here for the umpteenth time we're halfway through Final Quest, maybe even a little bit further than that. We are officially two-thirds through now. So, tell me your thoughts on being here at this stage of your career, of ElfQuest. What does it feel like now compared to the old days? Wow. Um... It's a lot more... The old days were a lot more wild and woolly. Yeah. Because, first of all, San Diego Con was a very different place. It was a very different situation. There were far fewer people. And uh, it wasn't so eat up with movies and games. It was a lot more about comics. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it had a very different vibe. Now, as Wendy said, we're two-thirds of the way through Final Quest. And... We're giving some serious thought to how many more of these we're actually ready and willing to do. And I think the reason we're doing that is because, and I don't mean to say this in a jaded way, but there are no more surprises. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of a sense that our karma might be done with this convention because because we walk in and, and we feel like the high ones, you know, we feel like the <laughs> oldest of the old, you know. Wow, well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> watching all the, you know, uh, the, the best part of it for me is the joy and excitement of the really young ones, the costumers, the cosplayers, uh, you know, the enthusiasm. It takes me back yeah. to our own years of that. And well, let's, I'm glad you brought that up because we had a... Um, you know, some cosplayers show up at the Dark Horse booth for your signing yesterday mm -hmm. that were pretty awesome. Um, I think the first that I've ever seen, maybe you guys have come across a gender-bent Skywise. Hmm. I've, I've come across several gender-bent cutters. Okay. You did one. I did one. <laughs> one year. But this is the first gender-bent Sky, Skywise I can recall. Except there there are is that wonderful group in... Um, Norway or somewhere and and they do definitely have a girl that okay. does skywise I've seen her photo oh you know what I, I think yeah. yes I've I yeah. do, I totally have seen that too um, yeah there's but there's she's not there's, as uh, zoftig as this particular <laughs> skywise was there's there's on Facebook particularly we've seen a lot of people doing gender bent costuming yeah and you know the lovely thing about it is that they just love doing the costumes. You could make a technical argument that this or that body type is not right for this or that character, but it does not matter in the least. No, that's done. There used to be more harsh 
judgments on wrong body types. I mean, yes, uh, even back in the 70s, you know, uh, there was an expectation that, you know, if you were a bit out of shape, you know, maybe you, because there was a lot of nudity back in the 70s, uh, you know, generally speaking, it wasn't thought to be too cool to, yeah. to just sort of display that all over well, the place. You know, but what, what I think is interesting, um, maybe a positive of the, the crush of internet culture, I think that um, there's so much meanness out there in the world that has so apparent and has surfaced around us all the time that I think a lot of people are realizing, you know, in terms of cosplay, it doesn't matter. It's about your joy and, you know, your skill of putting together a good costume and, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like, you know, do your interpretation and enjoy it. And so, Well, and another thing, there are far more characters available of different types. Like we saw a gigantic Big Barda. Do you, do you know the character Big Barda? No. She's a, a Jack Kirby creation. Okay. And she was this giant Amazon warrior woman. Okay. And today we saw a gorgeous black woman, well over six feet tall, just gigantic in every way, mm -hmm. doing Big Barda. And I, I just went, yes! <laughs> because, I mean, you know, perfect choice. Right. Perfect physique for the perfect character. Right. And it, it seems like there's a character for every physique now. Which is also a really kind of amazing thing if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, representation and all that. So. Yeah. But, um, Speaking of the uh, going back to the Skywest cosplay, I don't know if you guys got a look um, at Amber, who a Amber Melaninsky was the cosplayer. Did you guys get a chance to look at her eyes? She had. She used... she stopped by and made yeah. a point of saying she has stars in her eyes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and and at first. I didn't see that because I just thought that she had gray eyes, I and that's too. a rare eye color. But then she said, "Look close," and. There are stars sparkling on uh, yeah. her, and that was an amazing surprise. Totally. I had the same exact reaction. I saw her and just assumed that her, that was actually her normal eye color. You know, it could have been sort of a very light blue, Yes. you know, from a distance. But when I was talking to face to face with her, I noticed these little sending stars in, <laughs> in those contacts. So, so I'm glad must, she, she showed you guys. This must mean that these had to have been custom made. I don't know. I, uh, you know, the thing about uh, costume, cosplay, contact lenses these days yeah. is that there's a million different varieties. You can get them in all colors, you can get them in patterns, you can get them in, you know, slit like snake eyes or cat's eyes, and obviously you can get them with stars in them that probably are holographic and glow in the dark. <laughs> well, it was pretty cool, yes. you know, one way or the other. Um, so, I had another question in my mind, but the, uh, the martini took it away, so, again, I'm just curious well, for we your guys's... We were on the theme of what's it like to be here now, and right. what, what are we thinking about. Um, I, I think that none of this is said with any kind of ennui or world weariness, it's just, um... Just like Final Quest is coming full circle with the story arc, maybe this is maybe we're coming to the full circle of our story arc with San Diego Con. It's it's not what it used to be. Fighting the crowds is just miserable, and with the heat, yeah. the heat this year just made it 
I mean, I you know, I I think we're going to have a couple of deaths of furries. Oh, you know, because there's people running around in furry costumes. Yeah. They're, they're going to have a stroke. <laughs> um, the convention is just so changed and so spread out. It's it is something for the younger generation who have who have formed an entirely new impression of it to them that this is what San Diego Con is now yeah yeah go ahead Richard oh, no, they they don't know what it was and of that kind of a statement always runs the risk of sounding like old fogies back in my day you know we walked uphill to school both directions and um, there is just so much more here yes. that is competing for attention. Yes. And we used to go to conventions, particularly Comic-Con, but all other conventions as well, to get the word out mm -hmm. about ElfQuest. This is way pre-internet, mm -hmm. so often we would premiere a new issue at a convention yes. and people would come just yes. to get the new issue because that was the happening, that was the event. Yeah. And, you know, technically we're doing that this year too, pre premiering issue 15. I was going to ask about but, that. That was the question that the martini ate. <laughs> um, but, but, but no, yes, issue 15 ish did show up at this convention. Yes. But that's not why we're doing it. Right. You can get you can get the issue digitally. Digitally. You can get it via subscription, although it's a few days early here and we're driving some fans nuts by wait a minute, it's not the twenty seventh. You're not supposed to have that yet. Well, you know. Um, that it it's out here now is incidental to Comic Con. Let me give you a perfect example of what Comic-Con used to be like, and this is probably back in 83 or 82. We could set up pretty much anywhere we wanted, and there, we had a table. At, this is at the old El, El Cortez Hotel. I'm wondering if you remember this. I, w I actually brought my easel with me, my wooden easel and, a, and a, a giant pad of pastel paper. And I set up down behind our table, there's, there was like a little rotunda uh, down on a lower level of the hotel, little fountain, things like that. And so we were set up there and I brought all my pastels and I just started uh, doing characters, pastel portraits of the characters. and flock of people would just stand and watch me draw for half an hour or an hour and talk about ElfQuest and it was so low-key and so laid-back and then here comes Christy Marks with her Celtic harp this wasn't planned but she comes with her Celtic harp and she sets up her Celtic harp next to my easel and here's beautiful Christy playing this gorgeous fairy music while I am doing and the fans are just standing around like they're on some level of heaven and it was quiet and it was gentle and it wasn't hectic and nobody was pushing and shoving that's what comic-con used to be like so so Richard you just said you know that you, know, you run the risk of alienating younger generations by sounding like an old fuddy-duddy I think Wendy's story just was the antidote to, to that because all of us that are listening to this are like 
biting our tongues because all we would want to do is get in a time machine and go back and be one of those people <laughs> sitting there. And probably some of you that are listening to this are of that era of fans, and, and some of you guys might have been there. They might have been. Yeah. Well, you know, in those days, late 70s, early 80s, we were in our 20s and early 30s. Mm -hmm. So anybody who's of that certain age, you were there. Yeah. And you remember this. Yeah. And we were talking about this in the elevator just coming up here. How many people who are here in the business might be thinking the same thing that we're thinking? Gee, I wonder if I'm just outgrowing Comic-Con yes. and will they decide, you know, this year was a good last year, I'm going to get off the treadmill, or do they feel they have some driving reason to keep coming back? I know that, I know that we did for a long time. Yes. We felt, no, if we it don't show business, up, you know, it, it will hurt us. Yes, that's right. I, I propose a question to you, though. I wonder if we were to take a booth on some nice corner, some nice crossroads in the in the uh, exhibition hall, and if I were to set up my easel and start just doing pastel portraits of the characters, do you suppose that we could recreate that magic in any way today? Not a chance. Not a chance. Because I remember the scene that you were describing. Mm -hmm. It was um, like a walkway. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a pedestrian bridge mm -hmm. between the hotel and another building. Sorry. And I have photos of this. Yes, you do. Um, you were there. You just had, and it was a big easel, and you had the pad of you know two by three foot paper, mm -hmm. and you were just sketching away you were in a very zen mood i know and just talking to the fans and the fans and and this was back in those days this was just wonderful to us to listen to the fans listen to their input listen to their speculations because they've been speculating from day one you know ask asking questions trying to find out what's going to happen right. and, and i, and and I can guarantee you were grinning even back then <laughs> Yes, and we have the evidence of it, but she was looking, she's looking at the thing that she's done. She's got this very wonderful, yeah, that's got it, that's perfect, satisfied look on her face. It looks like we'll have to face. post some photos. Uh, maybe I'll it. find those photos. But the thing is, this walkway, there were a few people coming and going. Yes. You don't have a square foot of space in the exhibition hall today that's not crowded that's not noisy, that there's not a high-pitched vibration of activity. You were outdoors and it was like a, a calm summer day. It was very California day. laid back, for sure. Yeah. Very hippy-dippy. Uh, I think our last even remotely like that experience was in 2012. We were guests of the convention. They gave us a really nice location in Artist Alley. And I do remember that was probably my last sketching, the, the last time I sold sketches, and um, I do remember people standing around watching me draw and the usual questions and all that, but not so many. People, people don't feel as comfortable asking questions. It's more like, oh, I don't want to disturb you, right. and I have to remind them, you can talk to me. 
Yeah. I can I can draw and talk at the same time. Well, uh, and, and that's you know. that was my first year here at uh, San Diego Comic Con, and I was here, whoops, with you guys, helping out of the booth, and I yes. very clearly remember that. Yeah. But it, do you, but do you also remember that not thirty feet away there were the gaming booths yeah. and there was the actually that was twenty eleven. That that was the year I broke my arm. Remember, I was so frazzled from all the noise there. It was there. It was there in 2012 yeah. too. Was it? Yeah. But, but they had toned it down. Yeah. There had been so many complaints from the year before. So so 2012 wasn't bad at all. I remember. But the thing is, go back to that day on that walkway. There wasn't anything coming no over noise. PA speakers it, no. it, it was just this it was seagulls the murmur know, of people oh, wow. going by it was yeah. it was amazing but we we don't have that anymore no you could hear you could hear Christie's Celtic harp yeah well all over you know Richard I was saying to you yesterday that this is my fourth comic-con mm-hmm. and that first year to me was like such magic I, I really was riding a high. You were wide-eyed. Because, yeah, I had <laughs> never <laughs> seen or experienced anything like this. And um, and I remember you guys, you know, kind of be, probably at the beginning stages of expressing what you guys are expressing, that, you know, maybe this show has sort of gone further away from what you guys really feel and want yeah. to do. And and, um, and I just couldn't relate at all because I was like, oh my God, this is awesome, right? But, you know, coming in with a few of these under my belt yeah. and being jostled in the crowd and, you know, attempting to get my, you know, Star Wars exclusive action figures and being thwarted at every turn yes. because of the insanity of what you have to do to do that. Um, I can relate a little bit to, to what you guys are saying. Yes. Um, you know, again, I don't have... Imagine 40 years of I was just going to say, I don't have decades of these things but I I can see it a little bit more clearly than you know that first year when I was here um, as your booth beef (laughs) you were our booth beef and you I mean you just took to it well you are you are a natural in relating to people and you're a natural in pitching what you want to pitch and you pitched for us at at that convention and well uh, it's the least that I can do honestly (laughs) but you know um, my thoughts were drifting along another line here that I wanted to say. I think that magic magic is where you find it. And, and in the wonder in your eyes in 2012 where it was all brand new to you, I think that happens every year here now. I think every year somebody new comes and sees it for the first time, and it's the most amazing thing they've ever experienced. Well, that's exactly the same thing as we sometimes talk about with regard to ElfQuest. When we're doing working on a story or something like that, and one or the other of us asks a question, you know, do we want to do we want to go over this again, uh, or do we want to explain that again, or whatever it might be? We always have to remind ourselves that every single issue of ElfQuest is somebody's first. Yes. So we can't assume too very much about what everybody knows who's going to pick up this issue. So of course, every year at Comic-Con, it's somebody's first exposure and they're going to go like, wow! (laughs) (laughs) I think you guys do a really good job with that. I mean, they're... 
I think you're absolutely right. You have to assume <laughs> that somebody reading this might be reading it for the first time. Yes. And, you know, there are... Well, this is why we highlight names every issue. Mm -hmm. The first time a name is spoken, Cutter, Redlands, mm -hmm. Nightfall, whatever, we will we will make sure it's highlighted the first time. Mm -hmm. So the, any kind of new reader will will their attention will be drawn to that and they'll say, oh, that's that character. All right, that's fascinating because I, I have noticed that names sometimes are sort of like bolded, right? Yes. Um, but, but I never realized why. that it was the first instance. There, yes. there are two reasons for that. And the main reason is, as Wendy said, we have settled upon the convention. And there are conventions in comic book lettering. Mm -hmm. and, and we're still learning new ones because Dark Horse has certain ones and we've had certain ones for years and they're not always the same. But the convention that we adhere to is the first time a character's name appears anywhere, whether it's a caption or a spoken balloon, it's bold. And that sort of introduces that character, whether or not they're in the panel. The other, of course, is if somebody's shouting it or, you yes. know, then you emphasize it. Yes. Um, and, of course, a shout balloon is done differently from ordinary dialogue anyway. Right. We have to be careful because Jack Kirby, <laughs> God bless him. We love him. He's, he's, you know, the icon of American comic books. Um, had a thing about emphasizing half the words in his scripts. That's why my earliest lettering was so awful, because every other word was emphasized, because I thought that's the way you did it. You know, like I, I would, I, I have always talked out every piece of dialogue I've ever written, and I listen to which words I emphasize, and then I'll, cho I'll do that in the script. But back in those days, it was like, da-da! Da-da-da-da! Da! da, da. da. <laughs> yeah. and, and if you read a Jack Kirby comic, especially those where he was doing the whole thing, he was writing it, he was drawing it, he was yeah. editing it, yeah. as, as a wordsmith and an editor myself, half the time I find myself wondering, Jack, what is it are you saying here? I mean, why is that word emphasized? So now, when we go over a script, yeah. She'll send me the the, um, the text document, and I will go over it. And as often as not, I'll say, "Well, you know, for the rhythm of this particular sentence, what do you think about emphasizing this instead of that?" Yeah. And you know, sometimes this word instead of that word makes it an entirely different well, you, proposition. Well, you witnessed one of our writing sessions mm -hmm. once, mm -hmm. and and uh, so you see. I think one of the interesting things is, no matter how much San Diego Con has changed, our method of working together over the years hasn't really changed. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a system that works, and uh, well, so that's something that um, that you guys talked about on uh, the panel yesterday, which mm -hmm. was I thought really a really great panel, and the stuff that you guys were talking about. Um, the panel was put on by John Flesk's uh, Flesk yes. Publications, who has done all the Kickstarter books that everybody is drooling over currently. <laughs> um, and the theme was basically, um, you know, independent comics creators yes, who, who also who have, have worked for the, you know, the big companies. For the mainstream, right? yes. And so when you guys were talking about your method, 
it was kind of powerful because just seeing everybody else that was up there, um, you know, the rest of the panel, I would say, you know, is not, doesn't have the experience that you guys do. And the audience, you know, listening to you guys share this tried and true method that you guys have been, you know, working on and perfecting for, you know, a few decades at this point. Yes. It was pretty powerful. Yeah. But I think that's what keeps ElfQuest consistent. I think that's why people can read Final Quest now and get the same feeling from it that they got from older uh, older parts of the series. Uh -huh. there's, a, there's a consistency there of, of, of what the characters' voices, and I put voices in quotes, what their voices sound like. Mm -hmm. The characters have their own unique way of talking. You know, for instance, I, I think I, when I write for Cutter, Cutter's kind of monosyllabic. You know, he says what he has to say in the fewest possible words. And uh, sometimes he's trying to get across huge ideas. So I really have to kind of like write the whole idea down in as many words as I need to get the concept. And then I'll just, <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep whittling it back to its essentials for it to be able to come out of Cutter's mouth. If it were to come out of Tumane's mouth, it would be as, as florid as I originally wrote it. But right. when it comes out of Cutter's mouth, it's got to be monosyllabic. See, that's, <laughs> it, that's, that's the kind of thing that you completely take for granted as a reader. Because if it if it works and it and it does work, you don't really notice it. Like mm -hmm. you just well, know it feels right. It's it's like good film music. Yes. If if film music is really well done, you don't pay any attention to it while you're watching the movie, except that when you come out of that movie, you realize on some level, my God, there were powerful emotions being evoked by the music, but I didn't know it at the time. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, Again, I lost my thought. While you were talking, I had some genius question to ask you about. Um, was it related to the voices of the characters? Or? Um, well, I had like 12 questions going through my brain <laughs> about that, but I'm not going to sit here and ask you what I wanted to ask, which is, so, what is Skywise's voice like? What is well, Red Lance's voice like? But you can, you know, let, let's pick a few characters, okay. see, because they're all written differently. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, the number one thing that has to be injected into Skywise's voice is attitude. There are certain characters that have just attitude, mm -hmm. like Chot or Scott or, mm -hmm. or you know, Kavi. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just attitude. And, and attitude has to be written a certain way. It, it has to be written like, like a punch or like an attack. And um, it, it, it's, it, their, their dialogue has to hit kind of hard. Now, Skywise is just, he's a, he's a wise ass, and he can't help it. And, and so, when I write his dialogue, I think, how can I, how can I just twitch this a little, so that no matter what is happening, it's just a little bit funny, mm -hmm. you know? Because he's just naturally that way. Well, again, a conversation that we had earlier today, um, when I was working on the, the homepage post about moments that made us laugh in ElfQuest. Yeah. It really surprised me how many of them were Skywise related, <laughs> and he's a funny little bugger, right? He's I mean, a funny, it, you know. There's just he has a natural humor about him, mm -hmm. and even at the direst moments, he will come through with something. So I want to know, Richard, how much your finger is in that pie. I mean, are you? I think he knows when I'm off. I I think he knows when I'm not capturing 
Scott Wise's voice. Is that right? I think what it is is a kind of organic synergy because you'll come up with a line for Skywise, but I firmly believe that you're hearing a little bit of my attitude, of my voice, as you're coming up you with it. Think? <laughs> because, because I can just picture you writing there and you having the same reaction in the creation of it as you have if we're sitting next to each other and I make a pun and you just give me one of those looks. Yes. <laughs> it's like, shh. Yes. And so when we're going over the script, I can tell, and sometimes it's not even conscious, it's just a feeling that that's not quite skywise. And I have to be careful because if I am the avatar walking around with five fingers for Skywise, my smart acidness is not going to be exactly the same as his smart acidness because they're two different worlds, they're two different life experiences, exactly. and so on and so forth. And your moment is not his moment. Yes, yes. So. But it all kind of blends together. Yeah when we go over it the second or third or fourth time. Yes, yes, exactly so. And um, some characters' voices don't emerge right away. When, when I started working with the wave dancers, it was kind of a nightmare for me because, you know, I, I inherited all these characters that were developed by others and, and uh, getting to know them and, and get, uh, getting to see some of the problems with their development. So it, it took me a while to hear individual voices and when a character's voice emerges that's when the character emerges. So the wave dancers you see me featuring now are the ones I can hear. Mm -hmm. If I can't hear them they're kind of, they stay in the background, you know. Well, so yeah, I think that's fascinating because and there's issue, so many issue 15 features a lot of them. Yeah, but well, they each have their individual voices now. Yeah, and I don't want to spoil anything for issue 15 <laughs> because hopefully we'll be able to get this posted before the end of the con. Yeah, you know, so for for folks that are not here that have not gotten the you know the privilege of getting their their greedy little paws on the you know the issues that Dark Horse has brought. Sorry, but. <laughs> You, you have a week. You'll, you'll survive. <laughs> well, not even a week. It's Friday, yeah. and it's supposed to come out next Wednesday. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on, on the Wave Dancers, because oh, yeah. they, you know, as you mentioned, you, you know, you, they, they were sort of, as characters, born out of the, the sort of the 90s era Elf Quest, when lots of yes. folks were working with you guys on creating stories and art and characters, and, um, and, you know, you, you, you reference having to sort of, you know, inherit them. Yeah, and, and they, like, were, they were born in limitation. Okay. They were born in various kinds of limitation. And you yourself commented on that made a lot of sense because being, being a fear-based tribe, they, they deliberately limited themselves or they were under the tyrannical fin of Surge and... and um, uh, Serge was the first character to emerge for me 
Serge was the first one whose voice I could hear. Um, he was great. He was a great catalyst for everything that happened in the discovery. You know, he had a really strong personality, and the more I worked with him, the more I could understand how the tribe got so fear-based under his, you know, it's it's what's going to happen to us if Trump wins. Oh, Lord. Trump will just make the whole country fear-based, yeah. you know. So so think of Serge as a skinny Donald Trump. He's even, he's orange, you know. He's orange. But <laughs> I'm never going to see Serge again. I, for all of his flaws, I used to kind of like him, but I don't know anymore. <laughs> But he was, his was the first voice that emerged for me, and when his voice emerged, snakeskins starts to emerge. It, it, it is a, yeah. like dominoes. It makes perfect sense that that happened when you see the product of it, i.e. the discovery. Yeah. Because that's, that's, that's what's there. That's kind of the reader's experience, too. You get to know Serge first, mm -hmm. and you get to know his problems first, yeah. and then... And then everything else evolves from there. Well, one of the things that I find most fascinating about the wave dancers in sort of the meta level of thinking about ElfQuest, not necessarily like in the story, is um, is this idea that they represent that, you know, the, the elves in the world of two moons are not as um, sort of solidly put into a little box as we might have That's right. have have sort of taken for granted that they were. Well, shape-shifting, the idea of just being fluid, not only gender-wise, mm -hmm. but fluid physically, has just really come to the fore now that the palace's influence has spread so far. Right. But even even beyond that, even beyond the influence of the palace, right, these, like, when, when we really got to learn and meet the wave dancers under, under you guys, you know, sort of directing them, um, it really, it kind of shattered the, the, the idea that you have these, these, the species, and they've broken up into tribes, but they're basically all the same um, sort of, you know, uh, base model. And then you throw on a couple different, you know, cultural things here and there, and a different clothing style, and a different philosophy. But at the at the core, they're all exactly the same, with, with of course the exception of the wolf riders with a little bit of wolf blood. Huh? Yes. But but. The introduction of the wave dancers kind of broke that, that that sort of rigid way of thinking about the elves. Yes. And it really kind of showed us the like the potential of what they used to be. Yes. And and now in Final Quest, I really feel like well, especially with the introduction of the scary ones, on top of the wave dancers, where you're taking elfinness to the extreme mm -hmm. that it can be within this world that you've created, and they're not all the same. We're they really, can do things differently. That's right. We're really going in the direction of nature spirits mm -hmm. now. You see, nature spirits would have been hard to work with as a constant uh, presence for the audience to identify with. I, the more humanoid elves, the more human-like ones, much easier to identify with. Sure. You really couldn't have introduced the scary ones that early in the story and, and done anything with them that people could really have related to because they're just not. like the Mentally, physically, everything, they're yeah. just not like the well, others. Also, the original stories, the original quest and then Siege of Blue Mountain and then Kings of the Broken Wheel, particularly those three story arcs all of them had to do with characters who needed to get from a place of not knowing to a place of knowing. Mm -hmm. 
And it would have been a distraction to introduce me. The gliders, yes, they were they were strange and they were they weird were and they were eerie, but they were still basically, as David just said, the same basic chassis, right? Yeah. The same basic model the with Riders, different with different uh, uh, psychology. Definitely, the Wolf Riders had every reason to believe they were the high ones. They fit the profile. But the thing is that if if you had introduced the wave dancers, which are, are, are now, they're different because they're not on land, they're in the sea, and the influences on their culture and on their psychology are going to be very, very different. Mm -hmm. Or particularly now, the scary ones, who are almost so completely alien that they're incomprehensible, that would have gotten in the way of the, the momentum that the original quest and Siege Blue Mountain and Kings of the Broken Wheel, which is a bigger, all-inclusive story. Yeah. It would have gotten in the way of the momentum that that needed. Well, and again, the focus was on the elves versus humans at that point. And, and we got to a certain point with it in the classic quest, and then Siege of Blue Mountain dove really deep into the, the, mm -hmm. the conflict between elves and humans and, and took a stronger look at the humans' side of it all. Um, so, humanoid dealing with humanoid characters is what we needed to do at that point. Well, and then Kings of the Broken Wheel was absolutely uh, elf versus elf. The humans didn't really play true. that strong a role in there. But Kings of the Broken Wheel is where they first started to come into changes in their powers due to the influence of the palace. There was there was that that growth spurt. Yeah, and I think that was the moment, like, like because you guys did that in the story in Kings, that it makes sense when you really meet and learn about the wave dancers. Yes. And then again, now the scary ones, that, that these are beings that, um, you know, they, they obviously have some part of their chassis that, that is universal, right? But, but, like, there's some pretty radical differences between these groups, and yes. this idea that you know, that they're magical beings and like that like they don't operate the way that species on this planet do. So like, you can have elves that have a three year gestation and be the same species as ones that have two. Yes. But it's the magic and you can it what it really does is actually I mean I, I the more I'm thinking about it, the more brilliant it seems to me. And I'm just gonna assume you did this on purpose. But you know <laughs> Absolutely. You remember that line from the Ghostbusters? Somebody asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> is this is that um for a story that has as much history and um, uh, has been around for as long as ElfQuest, I think it's really easy for it to get into um, sort of its own little like sort of uh, like tire tracks, if you will. And it's hard to sort of bump out of them. And you guys have been absolutely brutal and um, in, the, in a positive way, like with not allowing that to happen. Yeah. And I think again, like for me, the, 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 the wave dancers and what you have portrayed them to be and taken them from where they came from and then again with the scary ones is a perfect example of it like you haven't allowed us as readers to get, to get lazy or get comfortable right. with it. like right. it's, it's challenging you know well, yeah. you know that's that's part of a conceit on our part which is this is a 40-year project it's a 40-year story it's not 10 four-year reboots right um it it drives me crazy 
and I know that this is probably going to drive some listeners crazy, but I cannot read superhero comics anymore because every two to three to four years, the companies need to figure out some way to stir it up, to make it fresh again, and how many different ways can we rebirth, reboot, uh, retool, repurpose the same characters right. and we have to keep some things constant but we have to make some things new in order for them to be interesting because we need to attract a whole new set of readers and we just have never given a damn about that we have a story it's going to take us going to have taken us 40 years to tell from start to finish and they're the same characters that we started with they haven't mutated, they haven't teamed up, they well, haven't... Well, they are the same characters, but I think, um, just as David was saying, we do uncomfortable things to sort of jolt the story in a new direction. I think what we're doing with Cutter right now is the epitome sure. of, of, you know, we, to take the hero and throw him so far off balance that you don't know what's going to happen. He's He's been the leader so far and everybody's been depending on him and now he can't be depended on at all. So to, to, so that's very symbolic of taking the whole thing into a jolting new uh, parameter. But, but you see, that is only what life is about. You and I and David and everybody gets jolted and we have to deal with things that we were not prepared for yes. but we are still who we are we are not the batman of the 40s or the batman of the tv show or the batman of dark knight those are only superficially the same batman they are fundamentally different creatures cutter is still the cutter who was born to Bearclaw and Joyleaf and who came into his chieftainship at a too young age and who's done all of this stuff and now who's having to deal with something totally out of left field. But it's still him. Yes. Yes, it's him as he would react. I mean he's just doing what he would naturally well, yeah, do. I mean, again that's that's that is why we are so still rabidly you know, in love with ElfQuest is because you guys have done something that I don't know anybody else that has not sort of fallen victim to the reboot syndrome, right? Where you are, these are people that we know and love, mm -hmm. you know, and they are the same people and they are consistent. And yes, you do awful things to them and we all, <laughs> you know, bite our, our, our fingers and, but yet we keep coming back to read. So uh -huh. something's working. <laughs> well, see, I, I was thinking of Jack Kirby again. What really pisses me off is like, take for example, the Inhumans. They've re rebooted the Inhumans many times, and, and what they've morphed into now is like, oh no, oh no, you know, these aren't the Inhumans I loved, <laughs> you know. But um, there was plenty in the Inhumans mythology. You could have you could have told a 40-year story based on what Stan and Jack created. Yeah. There was plenty in those characters, and it's and it just frustrates the piss out of me that 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 
that they didn't see that and and that they felt that a radical reboot would include radically changing what was originally created well, it, it strikes me as the um, as the extreme of what you were saying a little while ago Richard of the, about having to be cognizant of the fact that every issue might have new readers yeah and it seems like the the industry um, uh, habit I'll, I'll call it a habit of you know, these these constant reboots um, is is that same idea, but taken to like you know the the most extreme that you can take it. Yeah. And it does it does again strike me as like I don't think any one person, I don't think the creators or the writers or what, it sounds sounds to me like it's this sort of top big picture industry wide thinking like mm-hmm. you've got to make sure this is fresh and you know ever every X year. Corporate. Yeah. When it becomes corporate, when the suits start telling you what to do. And you guys have escaped that. Yeah. Well, that's because you know what one of my least favorite words in the English language is. Merchandise? Franchise. <laughs> Marvel, the Marvel Universe, the DC Universe, they are now franchises. Yeah. They And a franchise has a life of its own. It needs to be nurtured, it needs to be refreshed, it needs to be tweaked, it needs to be... And anytime you have a change of creative uh, staff or creative vision, or especially at the top, you know, with, with the CEOs, with the suits... Oh, yeah, and they, sw- they rotate pretty fast. Yeah. yeah, so every time that happens, you need okay. Uh, our, our our figures are down by ten percent. What can we do to tweak that back up? And they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Well, the emphasis is on things like sales versus yes. story. And yes. one of my other favorite words, merchandise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what's what's a hot trend now, and how can we tap into this? I mean, yeah. I mean, you personally. I mean, this whole thing of taking characters who have been straight for 30 years and suddenly they're making them gay. I mean, do you do you take offense at that? No, or, no, not you at don't? all. No, I don't, I, because there was such underrepresentation before to the yeah. gross nth degree that yeah. I think it's just course correction. But don't wouldn't you rather they create a, a new character from scratch totally. than, than take a hetero character that everybody has acknowledged as hetero and they just turn him gay? Totally, yeah, I you mean, know, yes, and when that happens, you know, I mean, frankly, we're still dealing with getting scraps. So sometimes you got to take what you can get. And, yeah. You know, I mean, and and you know, we're, we're we're coming down pretty harsh on the idea of sort of reinventing characters. But like, maybe there are some pluses and positives in it, and that might be a good a good example of it. Okay. Um, well, that yeah. that gives me a better perspective. Yeah. No, I mean, that personally doesn't bother me at all. Um, um, but I'm not a superhero comics fan. So yeah. if I were, if I were Maybe I would I would respond differently to it. I'm I'm more interested in seeing more representation of people like me. Well, and see now the, there was there was such a kerfuffle that arose from uh, J.K. Rowling announcing at the end of the Harry Potter series yeah. that Dumbledore was gay, but yeah. but it was never revealed within the story. Mm-hmm. So so people were thrilled to find out he was gay, mm-hmm. but then the question arose, why why wasn't this brought forward? Yeah. In, you know? Well, that, yeah. And, I think um, <laughs> there's a, a few things to say about that. Um, one, I think in that instance, she never said he was straight either. True. So, so that, um, it, you know, it wasn't a case of sort of 
retconning one of my, my favorite words, which I think is ridiculous, but um, that people get so cranky about that. But um, so there's that. Um, but then it raises the question, and this is another one of my sort of uh, pet peeves, is this, you know, the whole idea that like the existence of gay people means that it's like X-rated. And so I don't know if that was at play in J.K. Rowling's mind or in her publishers or whatever, but, you know, yeah, gay people doing X-rated stuff is X-rated, just like straight people doing X-rated stuff. Just portraying the existence of people who are not, you know, straight and narrow, hetero-identified, hetero that can be perfectly age-appropriate if you write it age-appropriately. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and so, um, I don't know. I don't know anything about what was the mindset with that, but I was thrilled when she did, she put that tweet out because it was like, yes, and it's Dumbledore, and all of you haters can go chew nettles, you know. I think I think the reason that we have the reaction that we do about that is, as all of you are finding out with every new issue of Final Quest, we planted clues from the very beginning. Not that we knew every turn of events down to the last detail, mm -hmm. but we knew enough about the whole story to be able to plant these little things very surreptitiously years and decades ago. Oh, I know. And, and, <laughs> and I think the reason we, act, uh, we react the way we do when somebody, after years and years of something being one way, suddenly announces that it's a different way it just feels a little bit ad hoc yeah you know ad like hoc. oh I, you know the world is trending toward this now yeah. so i'm going to just go along with that and that's certainly at play right i mean there's no doubt about it you know that there are those suits that are saying oh we better do this and yeah. is that the right reason to do things probably not but you know, sometimes it's probably a, a, a good thing to do, maybe other times it's not. But. Well, oddly enough, I just posted on the fan page not too long ago that ElfQuest has reflected every era, mm -hmm. you know, fashion-wise, design-wise, zeitgeist-wise. Right. It's reflected every era it's been through. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's been consistent. Well, so, so much of what we're talking about tonight um, boils back to the fact that, you know, in a, in, a, in a really big way, ElfQuest is an anomaly because of you guys. And that the way that you have managed to, you know, keep creative control and shepherd it through the landmines of of yeah, the comics and entertainment oh, yeah. we industry. Could've, we could have lost it a yeah. dozen times. I mean, that's really what all of this boils down to, is that right. you guys are continuing to tell your vision, your story, the way that you want to, um, and you have this long view. And it, that, that and you can't say that almost about anything else in comics, and certainly not bigger picture you know, entertainment media in the sci-fi and fantasy realm. We are... We are we have been very lucky and we're very, very grateful that the stars have aligned, the timing has been such that from the very beginning, A, we were able to launch ElfQuest just the way we wanted it, B, we've been able to tell the story we wanted to tell, C, that it's been successful enough that we have not been so dependent upon 
the paycheck from Marvel or DC or wherever, but you see that kind of feeds back into, well, if we're telling the story that we want and it's successful, we must be hitting a lot of, we must be striking a lot of chords mm -hmm. in a lot of readers. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a feedback kind of thing there. And that, over the years, has given us the opportunity not to have to care. I was going to say something else, but <laughs> I can who, see, I can see the self-restraint happening on your face. Um, that I'll not share with not to have to care what somebody on the outside says they think ElfQuest would be better being because we know that those people have their own agenda but our agenda is worth a lot more to us than their agenda of course yeah and well, we can afford the time and the care and the security to continue to do it our way and that you know i give thanks every day for that drop the mic yeah so do we i mean that's that's perfect um and you know what like some of those other thoughts and ideas might be just amazing and they might be you know they might do something for ElfQuest that you guys wouldn't that would be you know fine and whatever but that's not your vision and they're and like again you like you very articulately just said that's the magic in part of ElfQuest is that you guys have been able to for all those you know stars aligning and and good choices on your part and we're all just sitting here you know drooling on ourselves and eating it up <laughs> with a big spoon and loving it so well as to the future i, I will just continue to say who knows mm -hmm. because uh we are finishing the arc that we want to finish and then who knows who will pick up what and and come up with fabulous ideas like you're suggesting mm -hmm. the possibility and you know we'd be open yeah well on that note, I just had another realization, and you don't have to answer this question, but I just realized that Final Quest is going to wrap up in 2017, right? Yes. The uh, issue 24 is due to Dark Horse, I think, it near the end of December, so I think that issue will come out probably in maybe February of 2018. I don't, no, don't hold me to that. Right. That's just a guess. Well, I was just, you know... you. You mentioned a 40-year story arc, and did you plan it to end up? Oh my to God! Be exactly 40 years. <laughs> I never did the math. <laughs> You're just realizing this too. I'm just realizing right. February of 2018 is exactly 40, 40 years. years. Oh my God! If this doesn't come out on like February, cl it's close to February 28 of <laughs> of of 2018. Right. Yes. Uh, I got to talk to to. Talk to Mike. I, and, and since we're here at the Dark Horse Party, I think, you know, that's that that, we should do that right yeah. now. All right, well, you, you answered my question. So it was not in your devious little brains no, from the get-go. But, <laughs> but you see, it was in the universes. There you go. The universe wanted it to come out that way because no matter what dumb mistake we've made over the years, no matter who has tried to take it out from under us, you know, we've... we've I'm, you know, when I cross over and I get up there, I want to find out who our guardian angel has been all this time, and it's probably the elves. There you, you know? go. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, I think that's probably a good place to stop because yes. the crowd's starting to filter in, and we should be social. And also, my martini is dry, so I need another one.
Oh, well, you know, beyond <laughs> which there is no Witcher. More important than anything. All right. All right, well, uh, hope you guys enjoyed that, this little outtake from San Diego Comic-Con 2016. So, um, yeah, keep reading, and we're going to post this on the homepage and the Facebook page. So we want to hear what you guys think about everything we talked about. See you later. That was, that was like a podcast. It totally was. It was awesome. <laughs> we did great. Yeah. <laughs> The music you heard throughout this episode was a track called Call of the Ancients from the album Eternal Saga by Antimartikainen. And that track plus thousands of others are available royalty-free for your multimedia projects from jamendo.com. That's J-A-M-E-N-D-O dot com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Till next time, shade and sweet water.